Okay, so uh, after it's been two weeks since we began to discuss the third major warning that comes in Hebrews chapter 6, and it stands as a parenthetical, and I just want to point this out to you. If you were to read, if you were to go from verse 10 in Hebrews chapter 5, and then directly from there to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. You see it fits together seamlessly. So we read in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. So uh, the author here, you can sense uh, a bit of, frustration in that he he's having to stop and issue a warning because he was about to dive into this matter of of uh, of the succession and that's really what order means there the succession of the Melchizedekian priesthood which which began with Adam so uh, we'll look at that later on and in the Melchizedekian priesthood the seed promise moves forward from generation to generation and that this priesthood is prior to and supersedes the the priesthood of Levi the priesthood of Aaron and so uh, you know I, I thought about this and and you we see all the way back into into the the garden of well into the you know the first few generations where Abel brought a sacrifice of a lamb to God, right? And so I thought about why was, why was Abel's sacrifice acceptable to God, but, but Cain's was not? Did you ever give that any thought? Why was it? They were, both were first fruits, but why was, was Abel's sacrifice received, but Cain's was not? Was why was why did God receive Abel's sacrifice, but he did not receive Cain's sacrifice? That's it, because it was a blood sacrifice. So we see that there was that, that blood thread right from the beginning, and you see that pass through to you know, generation to generation to generation. So the whole concept of a priesthood precedes that of the Levitical priesthood, and the author is getting ready to discuss that to show that in all of the in all of the primary indicators of holiness to the Jewish people, Moses, angels, Moses, and now the Levitical priesthood, Christ supersedes them all, as his priesthood is not of the tribe of Levi, mm -hmm. right? Jesus was did not come from the tribe of Levi, so he was not of the priestly tribe, but he comes from the line of Judah. And he comes in the order of Melchizedek. Now, interestingly enough, we'll see that in Melchizedek, you had both offices of what? King and priest. King and priest, king and sailor, king of righteousness. As a matter of fact, Melchizedek isn't really a proper name. It's just a title. So he was, he was a Jebusite. Uh, and he was both king and priest. And so that doesn't happen again until the Messiah, until who comes again in the line of Melchizedek. But he has to stop there, 
and can't go right into it because he has to bring some correction to the to the the recipients of this letter because they had grown static in their faith they had stopped progressing and they had stopped moving forward and and I hope I don't know if I succeeded or not but I hope I conveyed the idea that this is serious business with God this is serious business as as a as a believer as a disciple uh, God's people are commanded to continue growing right and we'll see here in a few minutes it's not as if the Hebrew Christians were not progressing in a certain area they were progressing in a certain area and and the author of Hebrew commends that for the commends them for that but there was this area growing in the knowledge of God in the knowledge of these deeper things of Scripture you know there are there are you know I, I try to explain this to my omnibus group is that you know there are that and you've heard me say this over the years that scripture is like a layer cake right and and the more familiar you come with with scripture the more familiar you become with the ways of God God blesses you with allowing you to cut deeper into the cake it's not that the meaning changes it's just that there is a deeper level of meaning that God reveals, the Spirit reveals to you as you study the Scriptures. And this is what the author is enjoining them to press on to. And this is what God commands. And it's such a, it's such a, a big deal to God that, that what it functionally does when the Christian stops progressing, stops growing, is that it puts his son to open shame once again. And we discussed how that might be, right? You say you're a Christian, and are you living like a Christian? You know, are you, are you, are you following, are you living, are you not just talking a biblical worldview, but are you living a biblical worldview before this fallen world, right? And, and, uh, and fall, we do. Uh, but sometimes it gets so bad, and I think we've all experienced this maybe w at least once in our lives, when someone has come up, that you know, I, I thought you were a Christian. You know, isn't this what you're supposed to believe? Isn't this what you're supposed to live? So that, that obviously becomes more frequent when you stop growing, because when you stop growing, you immediately start sliding back. And so... The author says that this is such a serious thing with God that it, as an act of discipline, as an act of chastisement, he might just lock that person into a state of spiritual immaturity for, for, his, the, for the duration of his sojourn here on planet Earth. Right? This is a thing. This is a thing that, that we need to be cognizant of and we need to fear. Right? Because what's, what's the... What's the downside of being in a state of spiritual immaturity here during our time? It's got nothing to do with salvation, right? We had nothing to do with our salvation. Our salvation was a gift, a gift from God. But God expects us to participate in this process of sanctification and in growth. So there's a real downside that, that salvation, you know, your ticket into the kingdom of God is not in jeopardy. But there are still some things here, some negative consequences that, that can and most often do arise by refusing to grow 
and being in a state of spiritual immaturity, especially to the point where God says, that's it. You've had your chances. You're not growing. Doug, you had your hand up on that? Well, I was thinking one of the first things that probably popped into that situation was lack of peace from God. So you lose the peace of your life. Yeah, yeah, you lose the peace or, or, uh, or you don't. So here's the thing. And I thought about this. So, so we all know if we've been, if you've been walking with Christ for a while, you know that the tests that come are, are, are generally commensurate with the amount of time that you've been walking with Christ. And if you've been walking with Christ for any length of time, you know and you've experienced that the tests don't get easier. They get more difficult as you go on. So if you are, if you are walking and progressing in your spiritual maturity, then, then those tests never really push you over the edge, so to speak, right? Because you're growing in spiritual maturity. It's a strain, and I think that's what the spiritual tests are meant to do. They're meant to strain us, like put a strain on our muscles so we grow. But what about the individual who's in a state of spiritual maturity? Do the tests get progressively more, more difficult for them? So the gap is even wider, right? So, so there's a consequence there, uh, and there's a consequence of, you know, I've been having a conversation with someone lately. I don't want to, you know, get specific because it's going to be on YouTube, but I have been having a, a, a conversation with someone recently who's going through a, a, a potential tremendous time of stress in their lives. And... Um, and, you know, in the conversation, you know, taking the conversation spiritual, you know, that, that I have something in my life that they don't have. And that is faith. And that faith grows and that faith, uh, faith expands. And, but, you know, it's not, faith is not something that it's there, but it has to be cultivated. Do you know what I mean? It has to be it has to be watered. It has to be cultivated. It's like a plant. It needs to be fed. It doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen on its own. And so what happens is when that faith is properly cultivated, it's properly watered and it's properly fed, it grows and it expands. And and that ex the, the expansion of that faith is somehow tied to a recognition a keener, clearer recognition of the abiding, abiding of God in your life, His presence around you, in and around you. That only comes by increasing by the expansion of faith, right? Um, you know, when everyone remembers the rush and the flush of newborn faith, you know, the, the but, you know, after a while, you know, I, I hate to use the analogy, but it's like, in those first few days, you know, God is suckling us at his breath, so to speak. But, but, the, but the time of weaning comes off and God expects us to start standing on our own two feet. He's always there, always ready to catch us, but he expects us to start standing on our own two feet and start taking the few steps and progressing. That's why, there, you know, in the scripture you see the the whole walk of salvation and spiritual growth 
It's presented under the metaphor of a baby, right? You know, of a newborn life. So they're chastised because they should be eating meat. They need to be, they need to be given the milk of the word again. And so, uh, and so it, it's quite a strong rebuke, and it's quite a thing with God that God expects us to keep growing. Now, how do we grow? Well, uh, we, we definitely grow, you know, in service, right? So we prayer, service. But, but the primary method in which we grow is in the study of his word, in becoming familiar with his word, and then applying it to our lives. You know, you can be a great moralist, right, and be a Buddhist. Does that get you any closer to the kingdom of heaven? The same thing is true with Muslims. You know, I saw, um, I think I, I YouTubed you and I YouTubed Roman uh, that uh, in, in, uh, in Dearborn, Michigan, I used to live, you know, the next town over from Dearborn, Michigan. And now there, the Christians and the Muslims, you know, have, have joined forces to oppose, you know, the, 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 the CRT stuff in the public schools. Now, let me tell you something. <laughs> One thing about Muslims, and they'll speak their mind, you know, they're carrying around signs, stay away from our children, you sexual perverts, you animals. God forbid a Christian should do some, put a sign up like that, right? But you know what? Nobody's going to go after them because what will happen is they'll get fatwad. So they keep their mouth shut, right? So, so it's a big deal. Yes. Fatwa. Fatwa. Fatwa is the, the, the some Islamic... Uh, yeah, they basically they put a bounty on your head, basically, right? So they did that with Simon Rushdie, what, like 25 years ago? And it was just an assassination attempt that was almost successful on him not too long ago, within the last couple of months, right? Because he published that book, The Satanic Verses, right? So, so you grow and you keep moving forward. This was not happening here. They were... They were facing persecution. They were uh, under heavy Hellenistic influence. They were affluent. All of those things were working against them. And so the author comes uh, and he brings the strong rebuke. Look, you need to be, you should have been teachers by now. You should be teaching others. Instead, now, someone has to go back and cover the basics with you. And if God permits it, and sometime maybe that will happen. But what you need to do is you need to keep going on to perfection. You need to keep moving to spiritual maturity. And then he goes into the metaphor of the, the earth, which receives the rain, so on and so forth. But he ends on a high note, and that's what I want to try and do tonight, is try and get through the rest of this chapter, because there's some really neat, uh, really neat metaphors in here. But beloved, we... And, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9, picking it up there, that's kind of where we left off two weeks ago. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So th this part they were getting right. 
this part they were getting right. They were ministering and they were serving each other and ministering to each other and ministering to the, to the needs of the saint. But that wasn't enough to take them out of jeopardy for coming under the chastisement of God because they weren't progressing in the thing that is most important in God's mind and that is to come to a better knowledge of who he is. That kind of reminds me of the story of Mary and Martha. You remember that? Story in, in Luke chapter, I have it marked here. Luke, Luke chapter 12, I think it is. Let me see if I can. Yeah, Luke chapter 10, I'm sorry, starting at verse 38. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. So she... So what she was doing was not wrong. She was serving, you know, Jesus and... And a bunch of people came to her house and as, first of all, it was a, a great honor to, to welcome guests into your house and she was about the business of preparing food for them, preparing a meal for them. So what she was doing in and of itself was not wrong, but she became somewhat indignant, indignant and, and what she said to Jesus almost carries the force of a, a slight rebuke against Jesus. Don't you care that I'm doing all this work and, and, uh, and my sister's just sitting there? Why don't you tell her to get up and help me so I don't have to do this all on my own? Well, then Jesus replies, And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. So what was the good part uh, that she had chosen rather than her sister Martha that Jesus commanded? She sat at Jesus' feet to hear his teaching. You see? And, and the key, really, culturally, is a woman would do all that work. So Mary's kind of... Bucking the system. She, a little bit. Yeah. Culturally, she should have been helping her, her sister Martha. But, you know, she was, I think, she's like, you know what? I'm going to avail myself of every word that comes out of his mouth. I, you know, culture be damned. You know, customs be damned. Well, you know? there's, there's also a view. I, I thought about this passage a little bit. Could it be that Martha could have just delayed a step too? And done the preparation later. Right. Well, sure. It, she could have done that. Or could it also be, and this is, I think, where the kind of where I'm trying to go. Think about this for a moment. It's easier to serve than it is to sit and learn and dedicate to study and learn. Think about that, right? We have a lot of serving Christians, but how many Christians do we have that are well-versed 
and dedicated to the study of the scriptures. Yeah, the difference between Esau, Esau and Jacob. Yeah, you know that that whole thing gets perverted. You know, and and I don't know if you if you watched. I posted this thing um, on my Facebook page about Ben Shapiro, how he has these TikTok nuts twisting the scriptures. You know, and and Jacob was not effeminate, not in any way. I mean, crying out loud, he wrestled the angel of the Lord. You know. You don't wrestle the angel of the Lord if you're a, a metrosexual, you know? A lot of slapping and screaming. <laughs> <laughs> so, but he was, he was a man who was fully focused on get, wanting to know God. You know, and, and uh, I, think, I think there is a lesson here that we can, that we can take from our Jewish brethren you know, in the yeshivas, you know, where they just study Torah. I mean, they just study Torah. There's a, there's a show on, it's either Netflix or Prime. It's called Shetzel, and it's about an ultra-Orthodox Haradi family that lives in Jerusalem in the Old Quarter. And it, it's in Hebrew, but, you know, there's English subtitles. But it is a great look into the culture of, of uh, ultra-Orthodox Judaism. And how they are, they are so focused on studying the Torah. You know, obviously, they're, you know, they stumble at the stone, right? But I think there's a lesson there. Because I think that serving can be a distraction. It can be, you know, it's always easier to, to serve than it is to just, just put your mind into learning God's word. And it's sitting at Jesus' feet. Right, And so I think that this is what the author is saying. Look, God is faithful. He's not going to forget your labor of love and that you have ministered to the needs of the saints and continue to minister. God is, is not, he's not overlooking that. He wants you to keep doing that, but he also says uh, in verse 11, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. So he's not saying don't do it. He's, he's commending their diligence. But he's saying that they need to be diligent to that place where you come to the full assurance of the hope. How do you come to full assurance of hope? You come to full assurance of hope by learning about God and learning about his promises. That's how you get there. As important as serving is, and it is, it's a, it's, it's, it's where, it's where theory becomes reality, right? But you can't have the reality without the theory. You have to have them both. One flows out of the other, right? That's, that's what separates the moral, the moral believer from the moral Buddhist, is the underlying theory the underlying reason, the underlying motive, right? Okay, so he says that in verse 11. And then he goes on in verse 12, that you do not become sluggish, right? They had become sluggish in that word. Uh, let me look it up here. Sluggish means lazy. They had become lazy. 
but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So now he brings before us Abraham in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. So now this quote comes out of Genesis chapter 22. So if we go back to Genesis chapter 22 for a moment and look at what took place that, that, uh, that triggered this, this promise from God. In Genesis chapter 22, now, Abraham's faith. Okay. So, what's going on in Genesis 22? What's the big thing, the big story of Genesis chapter 22? Abraham commanded to go and sacrifice his son Isaac, right? So, let's stop and talk about that for a moment. So, a couple of things something that we don't often consider about Abraham's faith, that Abraham trusted God enough to be willing to do something that in his mind God would never sanction or allow. Human sacrifice. He trusted him enough to say, this doesn't make any sense to me. In all of my dealings with him, he's never sanctioned human sacrifice. Now he's asking me to sacrifice my son. I don't get it, but I'm willing to do it because I trust him. Not only that, but what did, what did God say about Isaac? In Isaac, what? The seed promise comes through Isaac and him alone. And yet, God is asking him to trust him in that he's violating, he may be violating his own nature and character as far as Abraham understood it in performing a human sacrifice, sacrificing his only son through whom the promised seed was to come. And Abraham was willing to do it. And that triggers the blessing of verse that's quoted in Hebrews. Uh, verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord, Genesis 22, called to Abraham a second time out of heaven, saying, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand on which is on the seashore so so back to Hebrews the author of Hebrews here let me get back there the author of Hebrews here says that that promise that God made to Abraham uh, he he swore an oath by himself so it was kind of like a double it was a double guarantee right that promise that God made, first of all, we don't understand the concept of oath today, right? 
an oath was an, a lifelong thing. If you violated an oath, you were subject to the death penalty, right? If you, if you, made a, um, if you took an oath or entered into a covenant, right? Covenants were lifelong and binding. If you broke your, if you, if you made a covenant with someone for 10 sheep, at the end of five years, I'll give you 10 sheep or something like that. You made that covenant, that covenant was binding. If you broke that covenant, the person who you made that covenant with had, every, had the legal right to take your life. That was the force of a covenant. Now an oath was beyond that. An oath now is invoking a higher, a higher magistrate or a higher power. So God, he confirms the promise not only with the nature of his character, because God cannot lie, but he also confirms it with an oath. So there's a double, double security there that God made to Abraham. And it was that, it was that double security that the force of God's character and the force of the fact that he made this oath to Abraham that, that Abraham was able to look to and persevere through all the difficult times that he experienced. That's what pulled him through. Okay. All right, so let me read on. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. So, so people had more honor back then. The oaths today don't mean anything. They, they, they're, they're essentially, you know, meaningless to those who, who, who are not, and I, I, I want to say who are not believers, but I fear that there are many who are believers to whom an oath doesn't mean all that much anymore. You have to have integrity. You have to have character. You have to have a knowledge of how God seriously takes this once you make an oath. That's why Jesus says it's better, better that you don't make an oath than to make an oath and then break it. Right? Okay. All right. So Abraham, after he patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, deter determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, that's us, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, the oath and God's character, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. Now what happens in the second half of verse 18, so you remember all the way back in, in, uh, in, in, uh, in chapters 1 and 2, the author begins employing what I call nautical metaphors, right? Uh, lest we drift away. Those were, those were, it was a nautical metaphor of, of drifting, right? The anchor doesn't hold, it begins to drift. Now he comes back to that to these nautical metaphors here, because where that word refuge is used used there, it's used in a nautical sense. A ship that is undergoing a storm seeks a place of safe refuge. 
right? And so, and so we have fled, those who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So what he's doing here is he's, he's, he's drawing a, a metaphor using a storm, using a, a tempest, a storm, and saying that this is what life is for you here and now. It's, it is, it's, a, it's a place of storm. It's a place of tumult. It's a place of uncertainty. It's a place of stress. It's a place of danger, so on and so forth. But we have a refuge that we can flee to, a safe haven. And that safe haven is Christ and the promises through Christ that have the double guarantee of God as one, first guarantee being his nature. He cannot deny his nature. He cannot lie. And two, that he's confirmed it with an oath. So there's that double guarantee there. Okay. Now, notice what it says in verse 19. He continues the metaphor. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. Now, what would happen with ancient mariners is as they were driving to a safe haven, to a safe refuge, oftentimes they would have to try and get into a harbor, but they would face breakwaters entering into the, especially in storms. Um, you know, we, we have such a place in Massachusetts, and it's called the mouth of the Merrimack River. I don't know if anyone has ever been to the mouth of the Merrimack River, but the mouth of the Merrimack River, they've actually had Coast Guard boats sink in the mouth of the Merrimack River because it's not unusual under stormy conditions to have 25, 30-foot breakers coming in through the, mark, through the mouth of the Merrimack River. So there was always a danger when a ship was driving into a refuge under these conditions of them losing control of the ship and the ship either foundering or running aground on the rocks. So what would happen is men would get in smaller boats with the anchor and the rope and they would row in through the breakwater to where the water was quiet and they would set the anchor there. And that would keep the boat stable during the storm. That's exactly the metaphor that's using here. Because look at who the forerunner is. The forerunner is the guy who gets into the boat and goes before us over the breakwaters into the safe haven and sets the anchor there that holds us sure. Yeah. That's exactly what the passage is saying there. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So there it is. Keep moving through the storms. Keep growing. Service is important, but it's really important to keep our noses in the scriptures, learning and growing about the scriptures. And the promises become more sure, more sure experientially, let me put it that way, as we grow in our knowledge 
of God and of his character and of his promises. So, keep going forward. Any comments or questions? That's really all I have for you tonight. Yeah. And and they saw more evidence of God's faithfulness. And the same in the believer, you see evidence of God's faithfulness when you look back on your life that he met his promises and he did the things that he said when you availed yourself of those promises. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, and, and this is the concern, you know, a, a concern that I have is that it's it's another so there's a sect there's a, a certain percentage of Christianity thinks that they can get there through experiential means right and we poo poo that we absolutely poo poo that but trying to get there through service means is really just the same horse but of a different color well, as long as I'm serving, I'm okay. But clearly, that's not the case because the, the Hebrew Messianic Jews that are being addressed here were commended by God for serving, yet they were in danger of being locked into a state of spiritual immaturity as an act of chastisement by God upon them because they should have kept progressing to where that by that time they should have been teachers of the word right but they weren't so you can't lay all your eggs in the service basket it's it's and they're accused of <laughs> actually it's not me it's the text that says that's the lazy way when you do that you're being lazy yes Well, but the author doesn't suggest that you have to do both. Well, that's my but, point. but they were they were doing the service to the exclusion of the study, Correct. right? So, and and all things considered, what is the priority, service or study? According to Christ, it's study. Yeah, but the thing is, is if you're really studying, you're really serving. And you're serving from the right motives, right? I could be serving in this church all the while worshiping Buddha and performing the same, if not better, service. Just not say I'm worshiping Buddha. And people would think I were a great Christian. But I can't, but if I don't believe in Christ, I can't serve under the auspices with the right motive of serving Christ if I'm not a true believer who's familiar with his word. Yeah.
you would be surprised at how little knowledge God's people have about God's word. I'm not sure I understand the question. Um, get, like getting out of your comfort zone, or always staying in your comfort zone. Does does real growth and the things that we're talking about here mean that we need to step out? Well, here, my experience has been God doesn't really give you much of a choice, <laughs> right? So, for prime example, um, if you would have if you would have told me a year and a half ago that I was going to leave my job in aviation to teach Gaga Google Science at Grace Academy, and for that matter, below elemental theology at Grace Academy, I would have told you you were nuts. I wasn't going to do that. God didn't give me much of a choice, did he? He didn't give me much of a choice. So he moved me in that direction. So I think, that, and trust me, and I shared it with you and I shared it with you, the day that I turned in my badge at the airport, that was a hard day for me. I have left 44 years behind. That was a hard day for me. But, but I was okay with it. I'm okay with it because I knew for certain that God had moved me from there to here. So uh, not a comfortable place for me to be in. Not a comfortable place for me to be in, but I'm okay with it because I know for certain that God moved me there. So, so I think God moves us when we're in his timing, when he thinks we're ready, or sometimes it's like ready or not, here you go, you know? right and so so I, I don't I think that God moves us there and I think we all end up at a certain point where we're staring over the edge of a big cliff and God is saying jump you know I think that happens multiple times in our lives jump you know and, and so I don't but uh, so so that becomes increasingly more frightening if you're not well versed in the scriptures you don't and it's it's not just a matter of becoming familiar with the literature of the scripture and the stories but you see in there deeply the character of God and his faithfulness to his promises and his his faithfulness to his people and you come to trust in it you know Yeah, yeah, you know, and, uh, you know, right now in, in uh, Omnibus, we're, we're working through Augustine's Confessions, you know, and here's Augustine, just, an, I don't know if there has been a mind 
as as big as his since his time. Maybe Aquinas, maybe Jonathan Edwards. But this guy was just absolutely, the things that you could tell this guy was a deep, deep thinker. And he was successful. He was successful as, you know, as a playboy. He was, he fathered a child out of wedlock. You know, he was a successful philosopher. He was a successful businessman. All of those things. And God got a hold of him and radically changed his life, you know? And, and, and to his dying day, he attributed it to his mother, his mother's prayers, Monica, you know? Uh, he attributed it to that, that his mother diligently prayed for him, that he would become a Christian, while his father... It was only later on, like a couple of years before he died, became a believer, was always urging his son onto the material success standards of the world, you see? And so um, we have those kinds of models in front of us, you know, who've endured great things. I mean, you know, can, can you, I, I, you know, and I wake up in the middle of that, you know, I had, a, I had a dream last night that I woke up in a lion's den in a den of lions, you know, and I was terrified. I woke up terrified, you know, and I think, you know, because we've been reading, we just finished reading Eusebius's church history, and this chapter, book eight, I think it deals with the Christian persecutions, the persecutions, and the tortures that they were submitted to, you know, the iron chair, you know, the iron chair was a chair made of iron, and they would strap a Christian Christians down to it and light a fire underneath it. And and the amazing part of it is that there were those Christians who endured that and survived without recanting their faith. And then there was, you know, they called it the griddle. Right? It was literally, you know, when you go into a restaurant and you say, I want a steak and cheese, you know, they throw steak on a griddle. That's what it was. It was a big iron plate that they would strap believers to. Or the brazen bull. You've heard about the brazen bull, right? The brazen bull was a was a was a a bull made out of out of bronze with a trap door on the side, and they would put the believer in 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 there, lock the trap door, light a fire underneath it, and there were two two reeds that protruded out of the brazen bull's nostrils that as the person in there is writhing and moaning in pain, then the sound that came out of those two straws actually sounded like a bull snorting. Can you imagine enduring that? Having to endure that for, for Christ? How did they do that? And more importantly, you know what? Our children and our grandchildren and our great children are facing even more than that. So here's the other part of it why God may, may take this seriously, that God wants you to be a good student of the word and really understand its truth deeply because God may use you and your communication of that word to your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, 
that will help prepare them for what's coming. So, big thing. All right. Any questions or comments? There's some heavy duty stuff. So when we come into next session, we'll get the author takes, he goes back into now explaining the, uh, you know, the, the Melchizedekian priesthood.